0: Hello, this is Michelle Weston, host of Learning Curves 2.0, Wellness Learning Curves 2.0. We're going to the second level of a learning curve. As you guys know, every week I have a guest and we talk about a lot of situations and things that come up having a chronic condition or having chronic conditions, whether you're a patient or the caregiver or the spouse or even a family or a friend that really cares about the person, and you may be that person they care about. But one of the things that I appreciate is I have a very, very good friend who got her master's degree in social work after seeing what was happening in healthcare. And she worked for many years in hospital, and she worked with a um, a bariatric surgeon and general surgeon, and she had a chance to see what happens in the system. So when she went to get her social work master's, it really gave her uh, clarity on how she could help people even more than what she was doing as a patient liaison for the hospital here in New York. And I thought that Tammy St. Clair would be very helpful to my audience to talk about some of the things that happen in regards to um, why is there a social worker in the um, heart doctor's office? Why does the cardiologist have a social worker? And what can the social worker do? What can the social worker do in a office for neurological? And how do they help? of course, in bariatrics, there are the help there. And what about with kids? You know, that's a really, really big area for social workers. What happens if you have uh, autism, if you have somebody on the spectrum and you don't know what's going to come up because this is a brand new landscape for you? And how would you know what services that you may be encouraged to get as soon as you start working with a group or a social worker or somebody in that situation, to plan ahead to help you with someone with a chronic condition or chronic conditions. Because as we've said, it normally collects, right, Tammy? Mm -hmm. There's usually more than one. There's rarely just one thing. And what have you seen happen? And I know that you both you and I have experienced both ends of that because it's happened, both you know, for both of us to start with one and then sort of collect more. And then sometimes we're able to actually turn around some of our chronic conditions, which is also beneficial and why you talk so much about bariatrics and have gone through that landscape like I have. And have had success in getting rid of high A1C issues of taking care of other things that showed up that suddenly are much easier on your body?
1: So I think when you have a chronic condition or you are a loved one for someone with a chronic condition, you can often feel overwhelmed by not knowing what to do next and or where to go or just being so consumed with the situation in the moment that you don't even get a chance to think about what could be next. And I think that's where having and utilizing the services of a social worker that might be in a doctor's office becomes to your benefit because the doctor has them there for a reason. There are gonna be services that you may need to access that you have no idea a that those services exist or b how to go about obtaining those services so um utilizing the social worker that works in that office because this is something they do all the time they're able to see down the road because for them it's become a routine oh this is what's going on with you okay i know that in six months, you're going to need this, or in a month and a half, you're going to need that. So we can get you on that road already. Um, and some things are immediate need, right? Uh, yeah, they have a a condition that affects your balance, so getting around public transportation can be quite scary when you have to go up and down stairs or escalators or you know waiting on the curb for buses so there's services that the social worker can obtain for you to get direct transportation from your home to a doctor's you know appointment and from a doctor's appointment home so
0: and these are in every we know in the US that's in every city correct they may be they may not be you oh. know new york
1: city is fairly um provides a lot for their citizens and New York State. With uh, you have, if you're on a Medicaid uh, program, they can get you the transportation. It just depends on sort of your state's philosophy on how they see helping their citizens and how they see supporting them. Because um, some states do a whole lot more. I know I've talked to people in other states, and I'm like, well, you should do this or get that, and they're like, we don't have that here. So it really is important for you to find out and work with your particular social worker, because they're going to know what's available in your city, in your state, what you can access and utilize.
0: I think that's good to know. And in regards to not just um, issues in regards to um, getting around, it's also things like setting up that if you had a child that had to go into a group home with a situation, social workers have that information. Right, and what you need to do ahead of
1: time in order to qualify, or, or get that child qualified to be there, and what kind of testing and what kind of milestones do they need, either need to hit or need to miss in order to qualify for an, an inpatient setting or a home setting of some sort. Um, so they may need to have attained um, some level of feeding themselves, but. They don't necessarily need to be potty trained no matter their age, because they at the at the home or at the live-in facility will be able to do that. And they will work with the the child to do that. Um, but, and they will even work around feeding and what, what to feed and getting the child to eat themselves. Like, like I used to have a, I was a nanny for an autistic child that would only eat, very limited um, things, no matter what we did. And eventually, and he was not potty trained at nine. Wow. Um, Yeah. And when he got accepted into the group home, they worked with him to expand his palate and to eat more things and also to get potty trained. And, you know, they did a great job with him. He's now in his I think he's probably in his thirties at this point.
0: Wow. Yeah. And he's he's still in a group home situation, but just graduated two different levels.
1: Yeah. He's still in a, he's still in a group home. He'll never, he'll never be able to live on his own. Okay. um, Because his autism was so severe. He was severe on the spectrum, but you know, It's it's better than him, you know, not being able to do anything and really living a very limited life. They've been able to work with him to get him communicating on a pad um, and with sign language, which a lot of parents and stuff are are used to or they're trying to do themselves. But we really struggled to get him to utilize any of these things. And when he went to the live-in facility they were able to just, you know, do it because they had, but had the family that I lived with and worked with not been doing the things ahead of time to get him qualified to be there. And each, each group home, each, uh, residential school, each of those have different, uh, requirements. And so working with social workers that deal specifically with that program, that Physician's office, you know, you may have a heart condition. And like I have a cardiac cardi- cardiology's office that has a social worker. And she deals with a lot of things in getting services for home, getting services for the transportation, back and forth to the doctor. And as things go on, you know, then she helps to reach out to a hospice company that they work with when things get you get to end of life care. So don't ever think, you know, and I think this, a lot of people do this. They always think, oh, well, I don't want to be a bother,
0: mm, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, you're yeah, a social worker.
1: You're not being a bother. <laughs> it's
0: unless our job. Being, we chose to do
1: this. It's okay. Right? Unless you're being, unless you're being impatient with us, you know, and thinking that you're the only patient that we're working with. That's when it gets to be a bother because now, because I'm trying to keep you calm And know that I'm working on your things while I'm working on somebody else's. That's when it gets to be overwhelming and a a bother. But most of us as social workers, just be nice to us because we know you're in pain. We're probably feeling your pain as well. And we're working as fast and as best as we can to get you exactly what you need.
0: That's great. That's helpful information for people. Uh, The other thing about um, social workers is what's the difference between a social worker and a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Why do we have different levels of how we help people with health care? Or for social workers, I think the the, uh, landscape is much bigger, correct?
1: Right. So in the 60s, psychiatry became a big thing with medical doctors so in order to become a psychiatrist you had to be a medical doctor and so they would dispense medication but also do talk therapy then in the 80s or so um and this is all very funny that you're asking because this is all social work history which is good because people never social thing right so 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 psychologists became the next up-and-coming mental health providers. So what began to happen was psychiatrists would still be the medication dispensers and some talk therapy, but then psychologists became the talk therapists. And while psychiatrists maintained the MD, so they retained the ability to prescribe medications. Then time goes on and social workers start coming up and they've been doing a lot of community work social work started in the community and getting services in the community. But then they became getting organized and, and working in child protective services and all of these things. And it wasn't until the 90s, 2000s, where social workers began being licensed. And then they have we have started to now do more talk therapy. Okay. Taking talk therapy off of psychologist plates because they're just not enough, right? So there were not enough psychiatrists to (laughs) do it. Now there were not enough psychiatrists and psychologists because people need to talk. We're we're more and more becoming um, less community oriented and less family community oriented uh, as we our lives expand and we move to new places we don't have childhood friends anymore you know we 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 don't have family living all around us so you still need people to talk to and you may not be a person who makes friends easily or friends that you can trust easily so it became oh well we need more talk therapists so now licensed social workers have taken on a lot of that role so we do a lot of the early talk therapy a lot of the early sort of diagnosing is this person this, is this person going to need medication is this person going to need a higher level of care so we can do all of that early intervention and also psychiatrists and psychologists they pay attention to your mental health that's okay. what they do yeah social workers we pay attention to your environment around you so we oh, interesting bigger, okay bigger so picture it's not just your mental health but It may be your home life that's contributing to your mental health. It may be your work. It may be the illness that's contributing to the mental health. And so social workers, we take a very holistic view of the person and of getting that person um, all of the services and help that they need besides talk therapy. So if I see that I'm working with you and you have a major depressive disorder or you're showing signs of that. I can still do talk therapy with you, but then I'm also going to refer you out to a psychiatrist who can do an assessment and evaluation and get you on medication. And then you meet with them once a month, maintain your medication, but you still do your talk therapy with me. And we work through the everyday issues of what is major depressive disorder
0: entail for you. And you right. use a lot of CBT, correct? Cognitive we, behavioral therapy. How do you feel about that? Everything.
1: We use CBT, <laughs> we use DBT, we use uh, desensitization, we use everything. We're very eclectic, as one of my social work professors used to say. <laughs> I love it. It's best to be an eclectic provider because <laughs> while we can specialize, and there are lots of social workers that do specialize, and primarily work in in one method or m- mode than uh, another. We all have very diverse um buckets that we can pull from because we've had a very broad spectrum ed- education and experience like part of my early social work years one of my internships was in hospital on a very different side like in hospital versus in a doctor's office. My other internship was child protection and child abuse prevention. So, you know, I've seen a lot of things and we all kind of come at sort of where do our heartstrings pull at us the most Mm -hmm. until we struggle. Most social workers also struggle with burnout, like, like everybody else. And I would
0: especially think that working with that that part of uh, child services and child protective services, that's got to be a big strain on people, especially, I think that we see so much even on TV, you know, or in a newspaper that tell us that somebody fell through the cracks and mm-hmm. that feeling must be a horrible feeling, but it's almost like we need more social workers. We do. We actually do need more social, social workers. and we need
1: the ability to have people you know everybody needs to feel valued and that's why it's important that social workers get the props that we deserve because we are helping across the spectrum different people with different things and we have lots of buckets of knowledge that we're able to utilize and work with lots of people so you know and in talking about how Social workers can be utilized. You know, let's just go over to bariatrics, which is where I was at when I became a social worker. And I became a social worker specifically for that community. And why did I do that? Because mostly when we go into having bariatric surgery, and if you don't know what that means, it means weight loss surgery.
0: We have, which and is Tammy. always the last frontier. Tammy knows that. Right. <laughs> I feel like you don't get there lately. You, ha- you know what? Right. In fact, social workers, I'm going to cut you off for a second. Social workers will be so valuable here because you need to know that you're ready. You really right. need to know, not just like you have a relationship with your psychologist or your psychiatrist, blah, blah, blah. You need to understand the medical part of this. This is surgery. This is right. surgery for a lifetime, right? So here are lifetime consequences, both both good and bad. Yeah. You know, not even and, bad, you know, just challenging. I think even more so challenging. When we say a lifestyle change, when we say you're gonna make behavior changes, we're serious. And what, what does that mean? And people often will think oh, well, yeah,
1: I can do this for a year. It's like, yeah, that's the kind of thinking that got you to three or four or 500 pounds. That's the diet mentality. But we're not really talking about weight loss surgery right now, we're just talking about how social workers can help. And what happens is people go into surgery, so they have these massive life changes. And this happens anywhere with any massive life change, right? You get a major uh, cancer diagnosis. There are major life changes that are coming often people don't know how to Diabetes too, right? Diabetes, Diabetes. heart disease, you know. uh, Stress management, high blood pressure. And so with bariatrics though, it's not only the behavior changes that have to happen, right? So you can no longer go drown your sorrows in A whole vat of macaroni and cheese or ice cream, ice cream. Ice cream or rice and peas, whatever your go to food is, donuts, cake, right? But you also have to figure out how do I make those changes? How do I not go there? What do I do instead? And I'll often tell my bariatric clients listen, we lay you down on the table that day and we take away the coping mechanism that you've relied on for your entire life or most of it. Because you didn't get to be three, 400 pounds overnight. You've been relying on that coping skill for a long time. And now we lay you down. We change the size of your stomach. We help you to eat less. We help you to lose weight, but we don't give you a new coping skill. That's your job to go learn. When So people need help with that. They need help with understanding, oh, all that stuff you're feeling because you go through a grieving process in bariatrics with food, the same way you go through a grieving process with a person, with an animal, with anything, because here's something that's been such an integral part of your life that has now been removed from you. So whether it's your animal passing away that you've been taken care of and has been your best friend and that, that relationship has ended because they've gone over the rainbow, you have to figure out what are you going to do instead? How are you still going to get out of the house? How, what are you going to do with all of their toys and things? How soon are you going to get another pet? If it's a spouse or a child who's going through a medical diagnosis and you need hospice as the, as a social worker in hospice it was always funny to me that i know hospice is end of life care but people always saw me as the adversary really when i was really there to help this transition and people would always say oh i don't know how you do this i don't know how you do that job I don't, and i can understand you know people on the outside of hospice don't don't really people are uncomfortable with death, no matter what. Right. And so being the hospice social worker or the hospice liaison, I was the person who would meet you in the hospital and work with you and your family to sign all the consent papers, to figure out what you needed at home, what you had, what you didn't have, what the doctor was ordering for you to have, and then make arrangements with our Our office is to work with our suppliers to get you the home equipment that you needed. And then for my nurses and stuff to go in and start taking care of your loved one. But people would often be so very uncomfortable that they would say, oh, but I'm not ready to die yet. It's like, I'm not here to make you die. Uh, That's not my job. Hospice is there as a a way I can't change. And this is what I would tell people when they say, I don't know how you could do this. I can't change what's going to happen. I can't change what the disease is going to do because that's the disease. What I can change is your experience getting there. And that's where I always took my joy. That's where I always took my satisfaction in working with families. So it would always hurt my heart when I would walk in to help a family and they'd be so upset and angry over the situation that they would be incredibly difficult to work with. They wouldn't want to give me information. They, they just were so angry amongst themselves that they because they were not ready to hear that we're at a point in this disease where there's nothing left that we can do. Except
0: make you comfortable. Except for make you comfortable. And be with right? your family if that's really, if that can be arranged. I know that you worked very much uh, getting people home so that they can be so at home.
1: Right. And I would often say to them, you know, it's like, I know this hospital food is gross. Even though that one hospital that I worked the most with, they actually had chefs there preparing food. And so it wasn't so bad, but. Well, that's because it's MSKCC. Right. (laughs) I was like, the hospital food is gross. You don't want to be here. You know, you got a dog at home. You want to be able to cuddle and snuggle with that dog. Get them up on the bed with you. All of those things, you want your own smells and your own tastes and being in your own house with your own noises. And that's why I'm here is to help make that happen. And so that's what a social worker can do. Then the social workers who actually work in the home with the families, once I handed everybody over, then they would come in and they would work with the family going through the transition stages. So the nurse would come in and they'd be dealing with the effects of the disease but then the social worker comes in and deals with the emotions around that you know oh this this person has younger kids at home this person has elementary school kids this person has teenagers this person has a spouse that themselves are dealing with a similar diagnosis they're just not as far along on the spectrum yet so they're watching in their spouse what could potentially be happening to them in a month in a year in 6 months right so there's always Lots of dynamics going on in a household. And social workers, we all have uh, had enough internships, had enough schooling, had enough uh, experience in things that we're there to help. We're there to comfort. We're there to give guidance. We can't tell you what to do. We would never try and tell you what to do. We can tell you this you is suggest, what I would Right.
0: right. You can it's, suggest it, it, And give
1: you options, right? Knowing what I know, this is what I would do. And now talk to your doctor. Maybe your doctor hasn't thought about that. Maybe your doctor did think about that, did say that to you, and you blew them off because you didn't think that that was going to be sufficient for you. Now you hear it from a social worker, you hear it from someone else, and you're like, oh, well, maybe we should revisit that idea. And so social work has changed so much since it, started in the early 1900s providing community services within communities, mostly lower socioeconomic communities, um, both a place for health care to happen, a safe space for abused children and spouses. There was always some element of that uh, community service and community working there to Now, social workers being involved in so many doctor's offices, providing so many services there, and then also starting their own practices to become, to be therapists. And sometimes it's very very jarring um, because sometimes people discount you because you have an LCSW or an LMSW. And while you're not a good therapist, because if you were, you'd have a PhD. Or you'd be an MD, you'd be a psychiatrist. And sometimes, true, I can't diagnose and give you medication like a psychiatrist can. But we all have our different roles now. Psychologists are mostly at this point, they have moved up as we're backfilling underneath. They're now doing mostly diagnosing for severe illnesses, so severe mental illness, right? So that they can then send over to the psychiatrist for medication. So I can send. To a psychologist here, this person, I think, has these things, rule out these things. We're sort of the first line at this point. Then the psychologist can do more of that sifting and sorting and stuff and see who actually does need to go on to the psychiatrist for medication, who needs very specialized, um, doesn't necessarily need medication, but needs a very specialized treatment plan and style of treatment. But also psychologists are now doing a lot of the diagnosing for children on the spectrum, adults on the spectrum, ADHD, ADD, you know, what used to be um, Asperger's, which is now just on the spectrum of autism. So that has become more of what psychologists are doing, the learning disabilities things, who needs what, because now social workers are doing a lot of the talk therapy And now coming up behind us, social workers, um, um, there's this new group called mental health, uh, mental health provider, mental health, MHPs, mental health professionals, something like that. And so they've had less schooling than us. Their education is very directed in a very narrow window around mental health, Um, but they're starting to do talk therapy and and it should be our goal that we work ourselves out of jobs, right? We have yeah. to be working ourselves out of a job because people are getting better. People yes. are learning how to manage their emotion. People are learning how to manage their stress and anxiety and fear and anger and all of those things. So we should be working ourselves out of a job. And so that's kind of what's happening is we need more talk therapists. So this MHP has come up, is now doing talk therapy as well as social workers. But then they can, if if they get a client who's got issues that are outside of their scope of practice, they can then refer to a social worker. We can then refer to the psychologist. The MHP can refer to a psychologist. So there's, but an MHP is not going to do all of the social intervention stuff. I'm sick. I need this. I need that. I need help paying for my medication. I need need food. That's where social workers are going to be able to come in and- like I, as a social worker, don't know the procedures around um, applying for Medicaid or applying for you know food assistance, but I certainly know social workers who do that, right? So I can get you connected with people who this is what they do. So we all work together. Social workers, are, we're a very community-oriented uh, group, both as individuals and as providers. So-
0: it sounds a lot like um, what we see in regards to health and wellness coaches. Why do health and wellness coaches today want to look for um, the ability to have the MBH HWC, which is a board certified? health and wellness coach, as opposed to a certified health and wellness coach, we have different organizations. We pay, you know, we pay just like Tammy was talking about social work. We pay for insurance because we want to make sure that everyone has their limits, just like she's talking about social work. And I've talked, yes. And I've talked about that as a health and wellness coach, I'm here to partner with you as a coach and coachee. You Mm -hmm. have the answers within you. And I'm here to ask you powerful, motivational questions. And with that, we develop a partnership so you can tap into yourself and help yourself. Oh, yeah, I knew about that. I didn't think about, right. you know, those kinds of questions, exactly. we keep turning on light bulbs and that's what they're there for, right. but we're not because there. I don't know yeah.
1: all of that stuff about you. You don't know all that stuff about all of your clients. And one thing that both, cause I have, I'm a licensed, I'm a health and wellness coach as well. Um, and one of the things like you just said, our client knows themselves the best, even when they sort of throw up their hands and they say, I don't know, I don't know there's something inside that they're just afraid to say, right. They're, they're afraid you're going to make face at them. You're, they're afraid that what they're going to say is going to be invalidated there. And sometimes, you know, that tends to be the last thing of my sessions with some of my clients is, well, what do you think? Well, I don't know. Like, well, I think, you know, having some time to just think on it because I think you have the answer, I can support you in the answer. I don't I I do not have the answer for you unless it's something that's obvious you're in an abusive relationship and you need to get out. That's something different. Sure. Right? Um but usually around different things we rely on both the client to know the answer for themselves as well as being able to provide like social workers we provide a lot of psychoeducation. Got it. So there's so we do. So explain that. how,
0: yeah. Explain explain what psychoeducation means, so that people can sort of get an idea.
1: So, hey, I have this problem, and I don't know what to do. Oh, okay. Well, here are some things you could do. Here are some organizations you could reach out to. Um, what do you know about the problem that you're dealing with? Um, let's go look at, you know, what I don't know. Like I know for you for MS, right. If you don't know when you first started, if you didn't know whatever you didn't know, you probably went online and looked at the national, uh, yeah, national MS, MS society, society, yep. and yep. and all of these things, and that's so that is providing psychoeducation in a digital format. Got it. So social workers, we do it in a personal format, but also like maybe you've been afraid to go to the MS website and to read all of those things. So we'll do it with you. Sure, We'll go together. Okay, do you understand what this means? Oh, no. Okay, so let's write down some questions. We'll go about each of us figuring out answers. And then, you know, because sometimes people are just afraid to make the phone call. They're afraid to make that initial contact. So if I can be with someone while they're researching MS and maybe they had somebody in their family that had it and all they can think about is how Aunt Susie was curled up in a wheelchair at the end of her life. Right. Sure. They don't think that there's any other possibility. Absolutely. So it's my jo- job to, to say, but wait, that's not, that's not
0: everybody. And that's and, not what it looks like today. Just like you're talking about social work. It right. looks different since and the 1995. Different. Sure.
1: And, and there are lots more treatments. Let's yep. see who's your doctor. Let's work on getting you into a you know where you need to be. And so that's what social workers can do and can be utilized for. And we do a lot of community therapy. We work in a lot of agencies. We work in a lot of schools, uh, working with kids that are dealing with their own behavioral issues and problems. They're dealing with homes that are neglectful or abusive. So, the or there's
0: no dad living. like you and I talk about, there could be you right. know a little boy who has no father figure, no male figure in the house, and it's an auntie a grandma, and mom's doing two jobs, and the right. child that's 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 a difficult thing for a kid because you have no um no one to look up to right. And so, you know,
1: but then that again goes back to the community, right? Yes. So then getting involved or, or knowing, you know, what does this community need? I'm working in this particular school that has kids coming from this community. What does that community need? And every community is going to be different because you could have the same issues in different communities. So like a school that has, let's say, 50% single parent families in an inner city versus a school with 50% single-parent families in the suburbs, their issues are going to be completely different, even though the common factor is being a single-parent family.
0: Yeah. Right. And what if you have a child who has a chronic condition and it is a single-parent family? So a social worker would be brilliant to have that help. Right. Because we're going to be the ones that, while we may never have
1: dealt with that yet. You'll find out. You'll find out. Well, we find out. We have the ability to make phone calls. We have the ability to ask, um, you know, educated questions. We can figure out, wait, are you really the right person we should be talking to? Or should we be talking to somebody else? And it's funny because social workers, and I am very guilty of this, I am a much better advocate for my
0: clients and the people that I work with than I am for myself. But then she brings someone who's a patient advocate with her because she knows better. (laughs) And you guys hear this all the time. You know, I want people to become their own advocate. Tammy knows that after 15 years of friendship. But there's also the ability to have someone to mirror and having a patient advocate. and, And to be on the outside
1: of the situation. Absolutely. Kind of just reflecting back. It's very
0: hard. Social workers
1: do a lot of reflecting back to our clients. What did we hear you say? What, what do you think you said? What did we hear you say? Um, what do you think your behavior showed? What did I see your behavior showed? Right. That's what we do. We do a lot of reflect a lot of reflection. And when you're the one sitting in the chair, it's really hard to reflect and have stuff thrown at you, right? Look in a mirror. The mirror is really hard to reflect back to you if you're throwing mud at the mirror, right? And sometimes that's how we feel in our own lives, in our own doctor's office experience is if you're a provider, don't be afraid to ask for a social worker's help because we can reflect back to you or a patient advocate's help. Just because this is your profession doesn't mean that as the patient in your profession that you're going to be that great at it. Some of the hardest patients are doctors.
0: <laughs> you know that having, having a father as a doctor, yes. yes, And nurses.
1: And some of the hardest patients are also social workers because we know, like, I, I could find all that's about. What are you telling me that I don't know? So what I would say is make sure no matter what, if there is a social worker in the office of one of the doctors that you're seeing for some condition, whether it's, Heart disease, chronic kidney failure, cancer, whatever. Like my dad, when he was at the end of his life, he was he was working in a, in a work with a clinic for dialysis that had a social worker. And at the very end of his life, she and my dad had been having these conversations out. you know, the end is the end is near. What do you want? How are you feeling? And he would say to her, I can't leave my wife I because she needs me. I can't leave. I can't leave. And the social worker would say, all right, well, when, when do you think she'll be ready? And so he would have some answer for her. And finally the last day um, my mom took him to go get his dialysis and the social worker called her into her office and my mom and the social worker said to my mom, listen, he's waiting for you to say it's okay to go wow and and my mother got so angry at her but sometimes that's our job is to tell you what your loved one can't tell you and so my mom got so angry and everything and the social worker stopped her and she said he's ready he's waiting for you to be ready and so he had to go to the hospital that day and so my mom took him and he stuck around for several more hours until my mom finally said to him, I'll be okay. You can go if you want to. Wow. And it was it was very shortly after that that he passed. And so it's it's challenging because that's part of our job, right? To tell you what you're not seeing, to lovingly bring you into that realm of like, Okay, how are you feeling about this? How do you think your loved one's feeling about this? What do you think they're, what's happening with them, right? And so having been on both ends of this this uh, bargain, the provider end and the recipient end, I don't, I still don't think I would change my profession. I may change how much it costs to get here, but <laughs> I don't think I would change my profession. Um, even as an adult learner going back to school in my 40s to
0: become a social worker, I don't think I would change it. I think that's important for people to understand. You know, becoming someone like a patient advocate, I came into patient advocacy in my late 40s, early 50s. And I didn't think I was going to ever, I didn't even know what a patient advocate was. And until my grandmother, who was in a assisted living she had her apartment but they had a social worker there and my mom said you should speak to this woman because she can talk to you about something that's new and that was patient advocacy and mm-hmm. you know early 90s it's a very there are more opportunities for people to help people um talk through walk through things that are hard they're just hard you know, incredibly we always, difficult. Right. And that's why health and wellness coaching now, if you're a board certified health and wellness coach, health insurance companies are letting that be written off if it's for chronic conditions. If you're working with someone to learn how to, make changes and be aware of the changes. We use the same things that Tammy does. I use smart goals and mm-hmm. you know you try not to overload people. You say just choose one or two. Sometimes you have people who choose five and then they come back and they're overwhelmed. You said what was the most important and what was the hardest one? And mm-hmm. let them tell you so they know right. where they are. And right. those are the things that bring us together on the uh, horizon of health care, you know, mental, I should say mental health care, mentally helping people deal mm-hmm. with health and health care and health situations. Because why did I decide to do wellness learning curves 2.0 for radio, you know, for 360 Network for Women? Because you're a diverse group of women all around the US and some around the world and Canada and Europe. And it was important to me for you guys to start to have your things in your bucket that Mm -hmm. you could call upon and that you could scribble and know in case something comes up or it's come up. And Mm -hmm. so talking to Tammy today, I hope that you have a different view of what you may have thought social work was, of what social work can be, and of social work is today, because she gave you a little bit of history, I've done that with you guys about patient advocacy. Very new. You don't know, you know, there are, Tammy and I talk about this. At the hospital now, they took the phrase patient advocates and they gave it to everyone. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. now a cleric is a patient advocate, even though they're collecting deductibles and things like that and co I would never as a patient advocate do that. That's my choice. Right. And to some not
1: hospitals have have remained separated and their yep. patient advocate Absolutely. is someone who deals only with when the family is having a problem with something at the hospital. They need something that they haven't been able to get. So there are some places, yes, that do that. And the secondary part of their job is, oh, well, in order to do that, you need to pay me. You need to pay first, and then we can make that happen. But that's not something that's standard. That's something that we can normally do. So we can provide it. Absolutely. But, it, and, and money is always the thing that everyone's so concerned. Uncomfortable. Yeah. So you, you have death and money, right? The two <laughs> things that people are the most uncomfortable. talking about. And social
0: workers, we end up talking about it all. It's true. It, it really is. And patient advocates. I work with uh, social workers all the time at the hospital when I'm working mm-hmm. with someone, getting them to rehab. You know, um, a mother, Absolutely. right? A mother has hired me because her son had an accident and his knee was shattered, and he's, you know, in his 30s or 40s. And normally we think of, uh, rehab connected to old age homes or hospice. Right. That's not at all. There's certain There's certain rehabilitation places that are perfect for somebody in their 30s or 40s who was at the gym all the time and has that kind of drive as opposed to putting them in another situation. And so we work very closely together. Yes, and I will say this again, you know, many of us work on a sliding scale because mm-hmm. we love, as Tammy talked about, why she went into social work. We love helping people. We love seeing you for an advocate. I love seeing you develop your voice. I want you to be able not to think that the doctor, you know, in the white coat is scary. They have clay feet just like the rest of us. So when you're dealing with questions, maybe you need an advocate at the beginning to ask questions. Maybe you need an advocate to write the list of what the questions of are. Of questions, right. Yep. And then that, think
1: nice. of the things that you're you're not thinking of because you're only thinking of in the immediate moment. But the advocate or the social worker is thinking longer term, wider lens um because while we've been through the situation with other patients with other clients, we're not the ones in the situation right now. And so we can still have a clear head about it better than family members because You're loved by someone and they don't want to see whatever's happening to you. And so in that, you know, social workers are there to help you formulate those questions, to help you say, what is it that you want to know? What would you still like to ask the doctor? What is the doctor? What do you think the doctor still needs to tell you that you don't understand yet? All of those kinds of things. And I'm sure that there are going to be social workers out there that are going to be like, oh, no, we don't do
0: that stuff. Oh, we don't do it like that.
1: But everybody's experience with a social worker is different. And every social worker is different, no matter who they are. No
0: yes. Yeah. And you know what? Patient advocates and social workers do work together. Sometimes you'll come into a hospital. The nurses at front will have had a very challenging patient. They are Mm -hmm. so glad to see you (laughs) because you're going to help get that patient out of here. And they're just like, oh, my God. I'll do
1: anything you want. I'll do anything. anything you want.
0: Because, you know, we're all in the end trying to help a patient that or a caregiver patient. or, you know, a family member. That family uh, gets that loved one home. Right. And get them to the next phase. And that's what we want for people. It's like those moments where you sit in a doctor's office and the doctor you feel is talking way over your head. If I'm sitting behind a patient and Tammy would say the same thing for her, if she's doing that, I'm taking notes and I'm also prompting you to ask questions. But I watch your whole back go up when they say you know, so we need you to do this and this and this and this, and I'll see you in six months. And then they sort of close your folder or like stand Mm -hmm. up. And I know. Because they're done, but you're not. Yes. So I will. They're done, but you're not. Right. So I have to say, Dr. Jones, Ms. Smith, I don't think is as clear as you need her to be to comply to what you're asking her for the next six months. Is it possible Mm -hmm. for you to reframe what she needs to work on the next six months. And doctors sometimes, as Tammy knows, get annoyed. But you know what? We're there for the patient. Patient, right. And so we will like wait. And then a patient sort of, you'll walk out and go, I could have never done that. It's like, that's why you hired me. And that's, you know, it's it's years of learning that. And I want you to know you have people in your corner more than you think. And so that's why I've asked Tammy to come on. I think uh, 360 Network for Women is really important for us to keep going back and forth. She has her show where she is dealing with weight loss and those challenges um, with her partner uh, Joanne, Joanne Orshin, and it's great because we can layer upon each other to build a network of women for women to make you more knowledgeable more powerful. And that's what we want for you.
1: Make so, women's lives so much more easy and accessible.
0: Absolutely. And on that note, I can say thank you to Tammy St. Clair to coming on today and talking to us about something that many of you may not know. I didn't know as much until she went to school to do her master's and this is a really important person in your health care team mix. And mm-hmm. I want you to remember that it's not just children in bad situations, women in abusive homes. They work in the healthcare system and the mental health system differently than they did before. And I want you to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. So we'll see you next week. And I thank you, Tammy, for coming on. Thank and you for having me enjoyed being here. It's been a pleasure. Social work. (laughs) Something that you normally don't have to talk about, but I want to share your knowledge with my audience. So thank Thank you you. so much.
1: You're welcome. Bye-bye.
0: Hello, my name is Michelle Weston. I live in New York City with my husband and also my senior terrier. And I am thrilled to be joining 360 Talk Radio for Women on Sunday mornings. Now, who am I to be coming into your home? Well, I'm a board-certified patient advocate, and I hold certifications for integrative health and wellness coaching with a focus on nutrition and earned my master's from Maryland University of Integrative Health. I also uh, earned professional graduate certifications in patient advocacy in bioethics, health policy, and public health from Sarah Lawrence and mostly Loyola University, Chicago. It gave me a window to our health care, and I'm ready to share with all of you who may be a patient, a caregiver, a spouse, a family member, or a friend for a person learning to ride the curve in living with a chronic condition and struggle with how you go about making lifestyle changes and shift into the best ways and tools to live your best life. Like my many years in numerous magazines at Condé Nast and Hachette and also at Hearst, I want to share with you how you can develop better body image with changes that may occur with a chronic condition like obesity and have a stronger self-esteem in the face of obstacles that you may have with a chronic condition so that you too can overcome the things you're worried about with your lifestyle, how it was and how it will be. How will our hour be spent? Well. For the first half hour, I'll be interviewing experts and have a one-on-one conversation about how to live with chronic conditions, what they are, and what we know about them today. That'll come from doctors, nurses, healthcare team members, and integrative wellness experts that you may know already, or maybe you wanted to know more about. Now, when I say chronic conditions, I'm talking about medical illnesses. Think multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, Graves, Wegener's gramulatosis, diabetes 2, Lyme, raised blood pressure, heart disease, and many others. So let me tell you, I'm talking about medical conditions that I've just named because I want you to figure out where you are and what you can get from our hour, and how to navigate a new landscape with their lives or your life. Now, if you have one of these conditions, like I do, in fact, many times many of us have a number of chronic conditions. Uh, I, get, I get them myself. I have multiple sclerosis, and I had obesity as challenges for chronic conditions. So, in the second half hour, I'm going to be wearing my wellness hat as a support coach and sharing my personal thoughts, what I've learned, great tools, and responses for how I handle people's questions or queries in living with multiple sclerosis for 21 years. And obesity, I hate that word, you know, I just never get that word, by the way, um, if at 14 years ago, But America leads in this condition, and having lost 136 pounds over the past 14 years and kept it off, after bariatric surgery, I had a vertical sleeve gastrectomy after a year with a lap band, and it should always be the last frontier to explore bariatric surgery. I'm going to say that very clearly. Because I think that I went through the stages and with having multiple sclerosis, I wanted to get the weight off because it was harder on my body with the symptoms I had. When you have things like uh, drop foot and you're tripping and you have a bigger body, it's harder. If you lose that weight, I found it made a difference in my center core and being able to balance and be able to carry myself differently. So I don't trip as much anymore. Now, how did I name the show Wellness Learning Curves 2.0? Well, in the spring of 2000, I wrote a book that went on tour, a 10-city tour, in fact, The book was called Learning Curves. It was about developing better self-esteem, better self-image and body image for women with curves. See, I wanted women to explore their inner and outer style. But today, well, I've learned that living with chronic medical conditions has supplied me with more life experiences. And I've met so many women who do it beautifully or those who want to know how we are doing it. So, I wanna talk about that. You know, I have MS, but I am not MS. You may have heard this before from people who have a chronic condition. It doesn't define you. It is, especially with multiple sclerosis from what I know. We don't have a cause, so we haven't got a cure yet, but there's many things that I've learned to do that made a difference over the past 21 years. I started finding a physical activity I loved, and I started doing Pilates. And that gave me core strength and made it easier for me to go up and down stairs here to the subways and the buses and in the apartment buildings and the offices, as well as changing my diet. And when I say diet, I know we all hate that word, but when I change my diet, and diet really means my food plan or my food uh, diary. I think that the biggest thing is that I added darker greens and that I learned to eat less red meat and less processed sugar and foods. And the reason is because I was inflaming my nervous system. And when I learned myself with a nutritionist and a naturopath, I learned that it made a difference if I wasn't inflaming my nervous system and it was easier for me to function. I had less brain fog. Some of you may know what that is, and we'll talk about that later. But it made a difference. So every day, I get to learn more things, and I have my own role models. One of them was Emmy. Emmy is a blonde, gorgeous, size 14, and I say that because it's important to know she is the average size of a woman in America. Size 14 and mostly, Emmy is much taller. But most of us are 165 pounds, a size 14, and five foot four. We don't think about American women that way, but we all come in different packages, and we all have different conditions. That's why I'm putting them together. Emmy said something to me that I want to share with you. You know, I don't think all women can be role models for one another. Well, actually, I do. We already are. Whether we like it or not, we look at one another's lives and compare them to our own. Although we don't like to admit we do this, we do. Be true to yourself and not to what others think you should be. That's a big thought. I want to leave you with this because it's really important. I want to hear from you. I want to know if there's questions that you guys have. I want to know if there's things that you can share with others. And we can talk and have a conversation because I'm going to share things that I've learned and I want to know what you've learned. And hopefully we can learn more and more about chronic conditions and not feel so challenged like our life is over. No, our life is just beginning, just with a different deck of cards. We're still playing cards, but you're looking at a different deck. And that's a good thought. I don't know. You know, I have MS, but I'm not MS. As I said, I used to weigh two hundred and eighty nine pounds, and now I weigh one fifty Well, I've been on a big learning curve, and I bet you there's a lot of you out there who have been on a learning curve yourself and also are looking to get on a learning curve for somebody in your family or friend or yourself with a condition. so let me know what you're thinking because The Radio Hour is a terrific way to touch base with people. It's like when I used to do a lot of television for fashion as an editor and as a director. I had the opportunity to meet wonderful people and share ideas, like Oprah, like the Today Show staff, and a lot of them, Katie Couric and um, Al Roker, and also do The View and do some wonderful, wonderful one-on-one teaching people how to look at. Bodies differently. Well, I hope to learn new things in this endeavor with you guys because I want to bring you new ideas and new ways to do things. As I said, you know, one of the biggest things I want to share is when people ask, Well, oh, I'm so sorry that you have a condition. Well, you know what? I'm not sorry. It's just another challenge in life. And even though challenges are hard, I think that women are really strong and really amazing. And I think together we can make a difference. We can make a difference for ourselves and for others. So let's take that ride together on the learning curve and discover a better landscape for our own lives.